This is Dr. Philip Kotler, author of 57 books, including my recently published autobiography, My Adventures in Marketing. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, which is named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas about what's actually working in modern marketing and sales. And don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com, which is also where you can sign up for the Marketing Book Podcast newsletter so you never miss an episode. And marketingbookpodcast.com is also where you can send me a message with with any comments, suggestions, or recommendations for the show. I love hearing from listeners like you from around the world. I'm also on Twitter. My Twitter handle is marketingbook or connect with me on LinkedIn. My name again is Douglas Burdett. I respond to every single message I get from listeners. So please introduce yourself. Now, let's talk about you. Yes, you. Whether you realize it or not, by listening to the Marketing Book Podcast, it says something about you. It says you're probably a lifelong learner, always searching for new ideas in order to be more successful. So I'd like to tell you about another podcast that you might really enjoy. The B2B Growth Show is a daily podcast dedicated to helping business-to-business marketers achieve explosive growth. It's hosted by my friends James Carberry and Johnny Green and includes interviews with marketing practitioners, experts, and over 25 authors who have also been on the Marketing Book Podcast. And while it's a daily show, each episode of the B2B Growth Show is only 12 to 15 minutes, except, of course, for when I was a guest on the show and couldn't stop talking about all the great books that have been featured on the Marketing Book Podcast. So just hop onto your podcast player and search for B2B Growth Show. And you can follow the B2B Growth Show on Twitter at B2B Growth Show. So if you're a business-to-business executive and you like the Marketing Book Podcast and you're not already a listener to the B2B Growth Show, give it a listen. Now on to today's interview. Today, we welcome Dr. Philip Kotler back to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his recently published autobiography, My Adventures in Marketing. Dr. Philip Kotler is the S.C. Johnson & Son Distinguished Professor of International Marketing at the Kellogg School of Management, Northwestern University, where he has been on the faculty since 1962. He is the author of 57 books, including Marketing Management, now in its 15th edition, Principles of Marketing, Kotler on Marketing, How to Create, Win, and Dominate Markets, and more recently, uh, Marketing 4.0, Moving from Traditional to Digital. Dr. Kotler has an incredible international presence. His books have been translated into approximately 25 languages, and he regularly speaks on the international circuit. And in 2005, the Financial Times surveyed 1,000 executives in 25 countries about the most influential business writers and management gurus, and Dr. Kotler ranked fourth after Peter Drucker, Bill Gates, and Jack Welsh. He's ranked by the Wall Street Journal is one of the top six most influential business thinkers, and he is widely regarded as the father of modern marketing. Dr. Kotler, congratulations on my adventures in marketing, and welcome back to the Marketing Book Podcast. Doug, it's a real pleasure to talk to you again, and thank you for that introduction. 
You were on the special 100th episode of the Marketing Book Podcast just a few days after Marketing 4.0 went on sale. And I have to say, it was the most downloaded episode in the history of this podcast by quite a margin, I should add. All it means is that every marketer is looking for some answers, is desperate to look at anything that pretends to have the answers. That's right. That's right. And I should also say that you have written more books than any author on this show, and you are the oldest author. You're 86. All I can say is it's good to be the king. Well, they have said that I am the leader in modern marketing, and that's very important because there was a lot of marketing before 1962. In fact, the field is 100 years old. But the fact is, I'm sure that the book I wrote on marketing management which had quite a difference from the previous books, launched that idea that I helped form modern marketing. And you say that when Marketing Management was published in 1967, that you were not happy with really any of the existing marketing textbooks at the time. Why is that? Well, I learned a lot from looking at those books, but I found them um, having two traits. They were very descriptive, and they were also very prescriptive. Now, the trouble with description is that facts change over time. And when I say prescriptive, they would say, well, a salesman should have the following traits to be a good salesman. Well, was that based on research or just someone's opinion? So I felt that the field needed to get more data-based and fact-based and that I was getting very close to a lot of the real research articles that had been published which are better to substantiate any statements made in a marketing book than to just come out of your, your head with the ideas. So let's go back just a bit. This was a very fun book to read, and it, it was sort of an adventure reading about what you've done. And I want to mention that it's very interesting. Your dad was from Russia. He left, fled, I guess, during the revolution. Your mom was from Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And you had two brothers, Milton and Neil. And you and one brother got a PhD. Your brother Milton got a law degree. And your dad had always wanted his sons to be great athletes. And, <laughs> and that, I guess towards the end of his life, he maybe started to think that perhaps the three of you were going to turn out okay. Is that is that right? Well put. Actually, he was very proud of what we turned out to do. But we attended a lot of the games where he was a first-rate soccer player, soccer football. And so... He was convinced that seeing him play, we would take to the game, but we were too busy thinking about things and falling in love with books and education. And he acknowledged that and he encouraged it. Well, that's great. And one of my favorite stories is when you talk about you were working on your PhD at MIT and you went to a, a mixer and you spotted a beautiful woman with black hair and, and pretty eyes. And you asked her to dance, and she smiled, and she said yes. And so when you were dancing with her, you, you said you looked at her, and you said, you look like Cleopatra, to which she replied, I am Cleopatra. <laughs> now, did <laughs> you know it, right then and there she was the one? Well, a little more than that, but that certainly clued me into her specialness as a person. And uh, I didn't think it was that she was into past lives where you really reincarnate, but it was fun to uh, open up that way. Yeah. Well, it also told me that she had a, a sense of humor. Right. So can you tell us about how this book came to be produced via Japan? Yeah. I 
have been a very close friend to the Japanese uh, people after the war. I, of course, it was everyone else was about their terrible thing they did to get into war with us and all that. Uh, actually, I've been very close to about five to eight countries, Japan being one of them. Brazil, Russia, Italy, and several others I'm very close to because I give a lot of talks there and so India. on. But now with India, oh yeah, India, Indonesia, you know, they passed a law that only the Kotler book could be read there for marketing. That's great. Because I get all these comments from students all over the world, some of them very almost worshipful about having landed on that book and it made their career. But the main thing is, uh, with respect to Japan, I started to collect uh, Natsukis and Tsubas. They're forms of minor Japanese arts. But the main thing is, I get a call from the Nikai press, the Nikkei people, they both are in the newspaper business and in the uh, stock brokerage business. And they said, we have a tradition in Japan of inviting a famous person to write 30 columns, which should be about a thousand words each, about their lives, and that they will appear in a particular month, in your case, the month of December 2013. The first column will be December 1st, the second column will be in our newspaper, December 2nd, and so on. And I said, you know, I'm not a columnist. I have written textbooks and research articles. Paul Krugman does the columns. (laughs) But I said, I'll try my hand at it. I asked a question first. I said, well, who else have you featured in the past? Oh, well, they said, uh, we we featured uh, uh, Tony Blair. We featured the head of Sony. And it just sounded good enough for me if they did the work of writing 30 columns. So I wrote that. They gave me permission to um, publish my columns anywhere else in, in the world and in book form if I wanted. But they have the rights in Japan. And as a matter of fact, they took the columns afterwards and they published a book in Japanese on the columns. So that got me started. And I began to realize that I'm describing a lot of my experiences in marketing. And I couldn't stop. I, I, did, I, I stopped with them at 30 columns. I ended up with 60 episodes in my life that I thought people might enjoy reading or learning from. So that's the beginning of the book, My Adventures in Marketing. So I often give talks, and it's not always to marketing people. And I may mention the four P's of marketing. And It seems like most people aren't aware of that. Could you explain that? Because that's actually going to come up in a few other things we want to talk about. Yes. Jerry McCarthy was a colleague that I know, and he was getting his PhD from Northwestern University's School of Management before I was there at Northwestern. And Dick Kluwer, his teacher, kept saying there is product, price, promotion, and distribution. And Jerry... A year, a few years later, as a marketing trained person said, well, maybe I won't call it distribution, I'll call it place. And because it's better to say there are four P's than there are three P's and a D. <laughs> so Jerry um, wrote his basic marketing textbook. It's called Basic Marketing, I guess. And it's got chapters which sort of carry you through the four P's. Now, what does it mean? It's clear that in any marketing plan, you're going to have to say, what is your product and its features, its benefits, and, and the services that go with it, everything you're offering. 
And then what should the price be? How shall it be made available? Sometimes we call that channels of distribution. And finally, how would you promote it? Every marketing plan would address those four things. As a matter of fact, some critics will say, well, there's more than that. What about packaging? Uh, And we would answer this. Well, that's part of the product. It's in a package and it's sort of subsumed under product. Someone else would say, well, what about the service mix that goes with the product? Well, in a sense, that's part of the product. We call those service product. So there are criticisms about aren't there a larger set of variables affecting the customer's wish to buy or not buy than just four called the four P's. And this debate has gone on, but many companies are very satisfied. Many CMOs, chief marketing officers, are very satisfied using the 4P framework. So we call that a a tool set, a framework for uh, building your marketing plan. And if you feel services should be a separate category and not subsumed under product, fine, do it. Uh, So that's what the 4Ps are. Well, I think it's a very durable framework, and it's because a noticeable number of books I've read where they're always <laughs> new books, they're always trying to poke at the four Ps. It's like they're looking for a chink in the armor. Have you seen that? And by the way, I welcome a new theory, a new framework that's richer. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't mind being displaced if I'm more interested in advancing knowledge. I haven't seen one come up yet. However, My good friend suggested the four A's, and and this is Professor Jagdish Sheff, and it was initially an article and became a book, and I'd have to remember the four A's, but they, in a sense, deal with is, is that person you call a customer having awareness, having means to buy, which I guess he calls it, you know, adequate income. So may, may I say that there are other versions of what we ought to pay attention to when we're trying to understand and serve a customer. Mm-hmm. So, Dr. Kotler, I found it very, very interesting in your background that you started out studying economics. And why do you feel that that helped you so much as a prelude to your work in marketing? I did not go into economics because I thought it was the way to get me into marketing because I was not aiming at marketing. I was aiming at economics. So my self-concept is I'm an economist. I enjoyed the training I received from three Nobel Prize winners, uh, Milton Friedman at the University of Chicago and Paul Samuelson and Bob Solo at MIT. I learned a, a great deal, but all of that classical economics had the character of assuming rational behavior and maximization. So the consumer was going to maximize his satisfaction. He won't make silly choices. He's always going to make the choice that will be happiest to make. The producer will always be maximizing profits and nothing else counts to him, just profit maximization. Well, over that education, I began to question it very, very much. And I said, I really want to know how consumers actually make up their buying decisions and how producers make up their decisions on what product to make and how to make it and so on. Let's get empirical because economists are empirical in the sense they'll gather a lot of data, but not data related to decision making on the job, so to speak. So I moved into marketing fortuitously for this reason. 
I was uh, one of the 50 people selected to go to the Harvard University on a Ford Foundation grant to train 50 of us in higher mathematics. And on that occasion, that year in Harvard, I not only met uh, who, who, Dean Don Jacobs of Northwestern University, who is the, the guy who built our business school, but I met seven other guys who were marketing trained people. The other people of the 50 were in finance, they were in management and other fields. And they all became distinguished afterwards in the marketing field for having that one year at Harvard in higher mathematical training. So I got into marketing that way. And when I got into it, I was more interested than, than the others in applying mathematical methods to marketing. And Knowing that there's some technologies uh, here, this was before we could articulate it as in terms of gathering big data and then doing market analytics work on the data. So uh, I was I wrote a book while I was at Harvard studying called Marketing Decision Making: A Model Building Approach, and it was 600 pages of mathematics to help explain decision-making in the field of marketing. And that was to be your first book, is that correct? It was supposed to be, but as I was finishing it, Prentice Hall had a wonderful salesman. He says, you know, Dr. Cotler, that book's going to have one reader, and you've got so much to say about marketing. Can't you make something that's readable? <laughs> <laughs> so I said, all right, I'll, I'll write my textbook first, and then that will be sort of a monograph. So I did put it aside, and I wrote the next book first. Oh, that's terrific. Well, let me jump ahead to one other really, really valuable thing that you talk about in the book that I think would be really helpful for the listeners, and it's sort of a, a formula for the whole marketing process. And it's got five parts. Each element has an arrow pointing to the next. So it's R, and then STP, and then the four Ps, and then I, and then C. And I was wondering if you could just quickly explain what those letters are. You've explained the four Ps, but if you could walk the listener through that, it's a great refresher on some of the things they, they should be doing. It's really a, the description of, a, of the marketing process. All good marketing should start with research. Don't go into a market blind or with stereotypes and assumptions. Uh, so that's what we call research or marketing research. Go and run some focus groups. Go and get the data that's already published. Prepare questionnaires. Learn about the market. Now, once you have some understanding, you'll realize that the market is very complex. It, it's not homogeneous. It has segments. And a good example would be McDonald's. The people who manage McDonald's, do you know they have a different marketing mix or 4P mix to reach the teenagers, a different mix to reach the mothers with a child, a different one to reach the seniors. In other words, there is the big image of McDonald's, but they have messaging going on for so many different segments of people who go to McDonald's. And, and getting them to come to McDonald's. So we call that STP in this sense. Any market that consists of segments, you should decide on the T, which is the target segment or segments you want to serve. And then you should position yourself for each segment in a way that is meaningful to why they should buy 
you know, your hamburgers or whatever it is. So R will lead to STP, segmentation, targeting, and positioning. And then to carry out the positioning, you need the four Ps, the, the specific product, price, place, and promotion that makes a tangible product or service. Now, that's your plan. You can't leave it sit there. You've got to implement it. You've got to get your sales force people to go out and find through leads, get leads, reach prospects who might buy the you're selling and so on. So I is about implementation where we find a lot of companies fail at that stage. I mean, they have a nice pl plan, but it is not carried out. And the last is C, I leads to C, which is control, because we need to have check on what worked and what didn't work so we can improve our offering in the future. That's maybe partly a marketing audit. Uh, how well are we doing? What should we change? What would work better? So that is the process. R leads to STP, leads to the four Ps, leads to good implementation, leads to good control to make everything better. Thank you. And we'll include that in the, the show notes, like I said, at marketingbookpodcast.com. Now, I want to go back again and, and ask you about an article you wrote in the, I guess it was the late 1960s, about broadening the concept of marketing. What was that about, and why did some marketing scholars not like that idea? Well, uh, we really created quite a controversy, and it's alive until today, by the way, because I recently read, was asked to comment on that controversy that we started so many years earlier. We said that, yes, certainly we know what marketing is when there's a physical product and you're looking for customers, but don't we see many types of organizations doing marketing where maybe there's not even a price? This is very clear with nonprofit organizations. Let's take a museum. A museum is not a profit-maximizing institution which uh, the conventional marketing teachers, they would like to deal with companies that are trying to make a profit. A museum, nevertheless, is trying to attract at least three or four groups. They want to attract a donors, money from donors, which means that they have to have a marketing idea of what the donor really wants and will get by donating money to the museum. In other words, it's still an exchange process. It's still transactional. Because if you don't give the donor anything, if you just take his money and not thank him and run away, there's no transaction or real exchange. Or future donations. Yeah. So in the second group, the museum has to attract visitors. It could have a lot of money and art, but no, no one coming in. And you have to have a campaign to remind people it exists and that they would get pleasure by attending it. The third is they, they're always competing for collections. And I have a collection of something. I can give it to if three museums are going after me. I, each one has to present the best reasons they have why I should give it to that museum. So we began to say that certainly uh, symphonies, uh, museums. Then I got into religion and I said, you know, and I didn't want to get into the marketing of a religion uh, <laughs> so much as the fact that I was reached by a lot of ministers and, and priests and rabbis. Uh, we, we have a, a too small a congregation and we need to really get more people in. How should we 
reach them and satisfy them. Well, I said, that's a marketing problem. And they knew it. That's why they asked me. <laughs> and it didn't stop there. Then I would get a singer, a good voice, but there are so many singers. And they'd say to me, Dr. Kotler, can you help me get an audience? I mean, can you make me famous? That's what they were actually asking. And I said, I, I can try. And this would be with a, a band uh, or an artist. So basically, marketing was popping up in so many places. Now, the controversy was, should we call that something else, this thing that we named broadening, or should we say that's marketing? That's real marketing, too. It just takes away the profit notion out of it, but everything else is there. And when a vote was finally taken to settle the issue, most of the professors favored the broadening of the idea of marketing. And I think there was a reason for that. They found two reasons. One is they wanted to do other things besides market ketchup. You know what I mean? <laughs> there was some professors who would rather market ideas or, or solve issues uh, like why do people smoke, which I call social marketing. I'll get to that. But the second was I think it gave us more status, not only in, in our community, but maybe with other people that that they had a better sense of what marketing is able to do. And explain more about the social marketing and, and your involvement with its emergence. So uh, one of my uh, colleagues, uh, Jerry Zaltman, and I noticed an article which had the title, Can You Sell Brotherhood the Way You Sell Soap? And it made us think, my God, that's an interesting question because we do believe we should all be f better citizens and, and care for each other brotherhood. Can we do that? Well, is that the only kind of cause? Well, there's other causes. Can we help people stop smoking? Because they're, they're actually paying a price for that. Can we help the HIV kind of thing and, and its devastation? Can we get people to eat better food? Can we get people to exercise more regularly? These are all things needed a name for. And we called it social marketing. In retrospect, I wish we had called it social cause marketing. In other words, there are a lot of causes uh, in the world. Now, I'm really saying that the four P's work with these causes. Let's take cigarette smoking. My initial thoughts would be, the, could we do something to the product to make it less glamorous? What if we found a way to make cigarettes that did not harm you? Okay. Or what if we required every cigarette company to put a terrible taste in their cigarettes? Or, or were maybe less addictive. Less addictive. That's right. And then couldn't we raise the price? Wouldn't that cut down on demand? Couldn't we make cigarettes harder to find? Do you have to go further to find the store carrying the cigarettes, less accessible? And finally, couldn't we stigmatize it if that, you know, or some sense of fear? And can we say no smoking in the office, no smoking on the airplane? So the point is, by the way, I have another term for that. That's called demarketing. So I invented the idea to demarket something that people shouldn't be using as much of. Like today, we're busy with water. We're, we don't have enough water in the world for a lot of areas of the world. They, they, there's, there's not even drinking water or anything. So we want to convince, use the reverse of the four Ps. In other words, it's still the four Ps, but they're used backwards. Right. That's terrific. So social marketing... And demarketing as ideas come up in just trying to make a better world. And I noticed that your book, Marketing for Congregations, was later republished as 
building strong congregations. Was that a, a marketing adjustment there? Yeah, it was a second edition, and we thought it would be a little more precise. And we had learned a lot in the first edition. And basically, it works. I, some uh, people and the ministers and others said they now are very comfortable with the number of people they, they have in their congregations. And by the way, some some religious people are superb at marketing. They They have huge congregation. It's not just their personality. There's a lot that goes into it. That's right. And, you know, in the Middle Ages, a lot of them started using a printing press and (laughs) they took advantage of whatever technology they have and they still do. So, Dr. Cotley, you had one chapter on Peter Drucker. And on your previous interview on this Marketing Book Podcast, you talked about the enormous influence he had on your career. And you say that while you've been labeled the father of modern marketing, Peter Drucker is the grandfather of modern marketing. Can you share with us some of the concepts that Peter Drucker so famously pioneered and and that influenced you? Uh, Yes. Uh, And and I'll just lead into it by saying that one of the most interesting phone calls I ever got out of the blue was from this man with a German accent who introduces himself as Peter Drucker as if I wouldn't know him. And I, hey, wonderful. You thought it was one of your friends playing a joke on you? Yes, you could be suspicious of that. It turns out that he wanted me to come to visit him in California, teaching there, and to spend a day so that he could interview me more about the work I've done in what he calls nonprofit organization marketing, work about orchestras, museums, performing arts, and so on. But it turns out that he's a terrific collector, too. He, uh, especially, he often, when he would lecture in Japan, he didn't want payment. He wanted Japanese art. He wanted screens and paintings and so on and so forth. But in any case, he was one of the first to say, purpose of a business is to create a customer. It would have been easier to say the purpose is to create profits, but there's no profits without any customers. Uh, He said, uh, in fact, that a business has only two basic functions, innovation and marketing. In other words, you make something new and then you better know how to market it. And he said, and everything else is a cost. Everything else, manufacturing is a cost and uh, hiring personnel, it's a cost. That didn't please everyone. (laughs) But he also said at one time, the purpose of marketing is to make selling unnecessary. Now, gee, most CEOs thought that marketing and sales, selling are the same. No, he was trying to puzzle them, making them think. It's sort of like a koan. What do they call it? You know, in in Asia, there's this kind of thing. uh, Put One hand clapping. What's the sound of one hand clapping? Mm. So, If the purpose of marketing is to make selling unnecessary, then what is the difference between them? And Peter would say, you'll know very much if a company develops a new car that everyone signs up to buy. And you know, Elon Musk has tens of thousands of people who have already paid money for a car that doesn't exist. They're standing in line. That's marketing. It's marketing because Elon Musk could intuit the need for an electric car that really is going to be $35,000. And the rest of it is is selling when you can't, when there isn't a line, then you try to get people to come and buy something. So uh, Drucker had many other statements, and he's still living today, not in, in body, but in, in, in his uh, followers. In Vienna, every year, 
there is the Drucker Forum, and it's going on its 10th year. And in, in California, there's college uh, with Drucker all over it. Mm-hmm. At Claremont? Claremont. Mm. That's where uh, Drucker taught, by the way. That's right. That's right. There was just one quote I wanted to, to share. I just I, I loved it. You said, Peter criticized companies that first designed a product such as a car and only afterwards tried to decide who the car is for and what to say about the car. <laughs> it makes more sense for the company to start with a full concept of the customer target and the product's purpose and then design the car to meet and satisfy that customer target group. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> and just think of the the marketing work that has to be done in the two cases. In the first case, your marketers have to create a fiction about the car because they never had the idea of who it was supposed to be for. In the second case, the marketers help develop the concept of the car and enjoy the work. And that made the promotion of the car so easy afterwards because they knew who it was for. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of a book I read by the New York Times ad columnist. Oh, it must have been 20 years ago. It's called Where the Suckers Moon. And it was about pitching the Subaru account for these ad agencies that were pitching it. And in the book, the author talked about the difference, as I recall, so I may be a little bit off here, but the difference between Toyota and Subaru, and he said Subaru was very engineering focused, and they would build the best product they possibly could and almost over-engineer it, and then turn to the marketers and say, go sell it. And he said that Toyota tended to have more of a, a customer-first approach to find out what they truly wanted, and then they would go have it built. Does that square with your recollection? Yeah, it does, and I will say that we love engineers. We find, however, that they want to think more in terms of black and white because they're measuring things all the time. They're building bridges that work and all that. And it's it's one of the, our problems when we train them in marketing that the subtleties, the psychology and so on, uh, we have to work on that a lot because that is not their natural way of thinking. Mm-hmm. So one other question, can you talk about some of the failings of the current chief marketing officer position? Well, chief marketing officers have a very big job to do, and I would say that the smart ones will spend 50% of their time training the marketing people working for them in the new technologies about mapping customer journeys, about content development and management, and, and, and many technologies and new skills. 50% of the time, but must put another 50% of his or her time in building really good relations with the other people in the company, especially the chief financial officer who wants to get proof that the marketing budget worked and developed a good ROI, but also good relations with the manufacturing people, the personnel people. And certainly with the president. And by the way, half of the CEOs, well, all of them probably did not come from marketing. They came from finance or law or something. Having a good relationship and understanding with the CEO, having the CEO learn what marketing really is from the CMO is very important to accomplish too. Mm -hmm. And not expecting them to understand that. Yeah, not expecting them to understand that because they have a different mindset, money and and dollars all the time. But how you really use that 
by building a, a company that is customer centered is is the uh, is the voice of the customers brought into the company by the chief marketing officer. Now you mentioned the other departments. Let's talk about one of my favorite topics as we start to wrap up. How in this modern digital age, how do sales in marketing work together? Do you think sales and marketing alignment is easier now or is it even more of a challenge than in the past? I think it's still a difficult uh, relationship. We no- noticed it and wrote a, a well publicized Harvard Business Review article called Ending the War Between Marketing and Sales. What we found is that marketing in setting the quotas and the budgets that the salespeople would often have a different opinion. In setting the advertising, many salespeople might say of the marketing people, you know, my clients never saw those ads or they don't think very much of those ads. So there were a lot of reasons why it was the salespeople themselves who were critical of of marketing as if marketers didn't understand them well enough. And the irony is most CMOs that came through either sales or advertising. But we think that so much more can be stated with groups of marketing and salespeople that we could bring a a much better relationship and understanding to work with with them. We we know more of what bothers each group about the other. This isn't a new topic. That article was in Harvard Business Review in July of 2006. So, and we'll make sure to include that in your show notes. But if people think this is a brand new problem, it's it's not, and it's I don't know that it's ever going to go away. Yeah. Well, you know, some of my favorite uh, seminars is to work with uh, Neil Rackham. He's oh, yeah. author of Spin Selling. Yeah, spin selling. He's terrific on sales, and I'm on marketing, and a lot of companies bring the two of us together and say, how about you two having a debate? (laughs) And they find out we're in high agreement. (laughs) I'd pay to watch one of those. So, Dr. Kotler, if readers took only one thing away from your autobiography, what would you hope it would be? You know, it's 60 different stories that I've gone through. I have a very wide range of interests. Not every story is a marketing lesson, and I would hope that the reader will appreciate what a person is like who who believes in lifetime learning and has an endless curiosity about things. If they take away the idea that you never stop learning, that you enjoy meeting and learning new challenges, that, that comes through the book very well. So, Dr. Kotler, how best can listeners learn more about you and your book that we haven't already mentioned? Well, <laughs> that's a good question. I, well, I, there's Wikipedia, of course. <laughs> yeah, I think they, they should start with Wikipedia and then see what has happened in my career. As far as uh, reaching me, I'm at Northwestern University at the Kellogg School of Management, and that's where any messages would be sent to me. I want to say that I now have an, a whole online marketing package that we're selling around the world. It's called Kotler Business Program. And I'm not pushing it. I'm just saying that we are able to offer a online program that can be uh, found anywhere in the world where after taking reading and then taking tests, if you pass those tests, we give you a certificate that you, you, you pretty much know the fundamentals of marketing. It doesn't mean you're a master. You remember I made the statement once that it takes uh, an hour to teach marketing 
and a lifetime to master it. So we're not selling mastery. But the whole idea is I, I, I firmly believe I would like to see everyone in the world have some sense of marketing, just like they should have a sense of what the law is and what finance is. It will help them in there because it comes up all the time. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I was not aware of that program, but I'm going to put a link to it in your show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And we'll include all those ways to get in touch and learn more about you and, and your career. The name of the book is My Adventures in Marketing, the Autobiography of Philip Kotler. Dr. Kotler, thank you so much for being on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thanks, Doug, uh, very much. You're one of the best interviewers I've ever had. Your questions and what you know is uh, astonishing. Thank you. And that closes the book on episode 141 of the Marketing Book Podcast. Links to everything linkable in the interview you just listened to are at marketingbookpodcast.com. And that's also where you can sign up for the Marketing Book Podcast newsletter so you never miss an episode. And if you have any feedback on the show or perhaps if I can make a book recommendation, I'd love to hear from you. Just go to marketingbookpodcast.com and leave me a message or tweet at me. My Twitter handle is marketingbook or connect with me on LinkedIn. My name again is Douglas. Burdett. Also, as I mentioned at the top of the show, check out the daily B2B growth show. It's a great companion podcast to this one. And please join us next time as we welcome Jim Stern to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his new book, Artificial Intelligence for Marketing, Practical Applications. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Podcast.